You are listening to The Concierge on Monocle Radio. Coming up on today's programme, our travel experts answer your globetrotting questions and bring you the latest travel headlines. We take a trip to Istanbul's Asian side and to Kadikoy, where food tourism is booming. In the kind of region that Antakya and Gaziantep is in, this is like the really famous pistachio-growing region in Turkey. And every small town has like their version. We fire some all-important questions at one of the world's largest air services providers and we sail out to the Pacific coast and into Astoria to meet some fishy characters. You have guests who come in from Portland, Seattle, California, worldwide really, and you also have locals that come in here with their fishing boots or just fresh off the dock and maybe they just want to have a drink. That is all to come on The Concierge on Monocle Radio in association with Allianz Partners. Well, welcome to The Concierge on Monocle Radio with me, Robert Bound. Hope it's sunny wherever you're listening to this programme. And talking of sunny dispositions, Monocle's Vienna correspondent, Alexei Korolev, joins me on the line. Alexei, welcome to the programme. Lovely to have you with us today. Is it holiday weather in Vienna? Well, it is sunny for sure, but, you know, we've had a bit of a cold spell in Vienna in the the past few days. But it's getting better. You know, sun's out today and everything suddenly looks pretty. Okay, another skis packed away for the season? Or are you still tempted to head to Kitzbühel? No, no. It's packed away. <laughs> They're packed away. All right. Well, thanks for bringing uh, your sunny vibes to today's programme. Now, you know, as a fan of this programme and as a participant in it, um, what happens first? And that is we ask people, guests and friends of the show alike, and people that phone in to tell us where their passport was last stamped. Alexei, you are not going to be able to steer clear of this uh, normally quite fun task. So tell us, where were you last at? Where was your passport last stamped? And don't say on page four. (laughs) (laughs) Well, technically, my passport was not stamped. I took a night train the other week to Milan, from Vienna to Milan. I quite enjoyed it, but I have to say that the car... The whole car, except for my compartment, was full of Italian teenagers um, coming back from a school trip to Vienna. So you can imagine the noise. I barely slept, but, you know, I, I, I really had a good time, nevertheless. OK, you learned hopefully some new slang then, presumably. Yeah, say. absolutely. Yeah, uh, you can. Make... <laughs> well, you can presumably share that. Share that in your next missive, perhaps the Monocle magazine, where people can choose to hear some of those uh, choice words. Alexei, lovely to have us with you on the show. Now we're going to listen, I think, somewhere in this vast Monocle hotel. I can hear a bell ringing. Okay, so let's launch the concierge service. And the desk, as we can all hear, is open for your questions. And first up, joining us on the line from Santiago in Chile is Eduardo Hamo. Eduardo, thank you so much uh, for calling into the concierge. Let's uh, satisfy our listeners' curiosity in wondering whether it is vacationing weather in Santiago right now. Well, actually, it's, it's, uh, we just started autumn, but we have uh, 30 degrees almost the whole week, which is uh, unusual this part of the year. So, <laughs> but uh, we are getting into autumn soon and, and waiting for snow this winter. Okay, well, although this program, the concierge, likes to travel around the world, we certainly wouldn't have our collar up in 30 degree weather. We, we think that's fairly summery here uh, in the well air conditioned Studio One at Midori House in London. Um, Eduardo, so please can you uh, give us your question for our panel? I will be attending Salona del Mobile this month. We are staying in Santa Margarita and visiting Cinque Terre the weekend before. 
so I would like to have some suggestions for a weekend with my wife and, and that beautiful spot. Perfect. So Eduardo is visiting Salone del Mobile this month and he's off to Cinque Terre. He wants to go to Cinque Terre. Where should he go? Well, I should say that we've got Alexei Koryov on the line from Vienna, as previously advertised. But also this programme's producer, Tom Webb, has jumped from behind the glass out of the control room and into Studio One because I believe you've just come back from a trip, a holiday yourself in Cinque Terre, Tom. Welcome to the programme, by the way. Thank you. It's because I'm desperate to talk about my holiday to someone. <laughs> so this is the perfect forum for me. Well, I think the postcard is still on its way, isn't it? To you. To, uh, to the concierge massive, to uh, the team. Yeah, I think there's a postal strike, but it is on its way. Oh, thank you. So Eduardo's on the line. What can you give him on Cinque Terre intelligence? I want to make this tailor-made for you. So a question first. Are you going to be hiking or have you got Louis Vuitton suitcase with you? More hiking than carrying a Louis Vuitton. Perfect, because you cannot have wheels where you'll be going. It's a good time that you're going. I would say mid-April would be the last time I'd be booking a trip there. It gets so crazy, crazy busy. So sort of between March and mid-April and October are the last months for you to do this. I would spend time in each of the five villages, all five offer something very, very different, and people make the mistake of rushing through them, catching trains. I would really suggest that you don't have a train timetable and that you hike them. It is a tourist town, so the restaurants aren't particularly good. I would suggest going to a bakery, getting some focaccia, going down to the port where you can catch some sun because it's very tall buildings, there's lots of shadow, and get some Prosecco and some local anchovies and olives and sit on the wall. And so that's breakfast, Tom. That's <laughs> What's Eduardo going to have for lunch? So how many miles do you think he's going to do after that? Yeah, no, this is, this is once you stroll uh, oh, into town. Uh, swim in the ports because they're a wonderful place to swim. People are a bit nervous because there's so many crowds about sort of getting into their swimwear and slinking into the water. But actually, it's a wonderful thing to do. Best sunset is a Nessun Dorma. I'm not going to burst into song. I am desperate to. That is, uh, if you can get a table, the vineyards behind it are another beautiful spot to watch it. I actually saw dolphins jumping out of the water, leaping out, not just little arch, coming out of the water at sunset because they know they're being watched. Um, <laughs> and then a lot of people miss out Cornelia. That is the mountain village. It's the only village that's not down by the water. It's delightful. It's famous for basil ice cream. I can't recommend Alberto enough. I had it with lemon. It was spectacular. So hiking, the lover's walk is shut, so you have to go up into the mountains. It is steep, and I hike a lot, and I found that it really took the breath out of me. So do not underestimate it while they're fixing that landslide. And Why is it to... named lover's, lover's walk? Is that because it makes you out of breath? or <laughs> No, the lover's walk is the lovely flat strolling. It's where the older couples... Oh, I see. A different kind of, sort of, yeah, more platonic. It is. It's the okay. rekindling of relationships. <laughs> Let's go on holiday and do a walk that we can do still. Go to Porto Venere. It's not part of the five. It's beautiful, and that's where you should start your hike to Rio Maggiore. Stunning. Not many people do that one. That's quite long. And then another hike people miss is Monterosso to Levanto at the very end. And if you're catching a train to Milan, go to Portofino and go to Portofinese, which is a new restaurant, bar, vineyard that we're reviewing for the magazine. And it is stunning. Eduardo, an embarrassment of riches there, I think. It sounds like your uh, brand new unbroken in Berghouses are going to go through their paces in the Cinque Terre. Does all or some of that make it into your itinerary for your Salone del Mobile long weekend? 
Definitely, thank you very much. It's very good suggestions for the weekend, and uh, I will think of many of those. But I've got some insights for focaccia and ice cream. Thank Perfect. you very much. Eduardo, on the line from Santiago, gracias. And let's go to the States now and to Oregon from a question from a listener named Shane Clemens. We're heading to Busan as our last stop on a trip around Korea in April. Any advice on the best things to see, do and eat? So that was Shane Clemens on the line from Oregon in the United States. He's off to Busan. And it's the last stop on a trip around Korea and he's going this month as well. What are the best things to see, do and and eat. So we're going to hand you over to Jayap Kwak, Monocle's sole correspondent, for an answer. So I'm really glad that one of our listeners has decided to venture out to Busan because, in my opinion, it's one of the most interesting and most charming cities in the country. Yeongdo is a small island not far from the main train station. On Yeongdo, there are several cafes on the hilltop that overlooks the old port. There's the park called Taejongde beautiful place with stunning cliffs and unobstructed views of the sea. From there, you can actually, on a clear day, see Japan. Mangmi is a residential neighborhood. Mangmi also has really interesting mix of local businesses from restaurants and cafes to a vegan bakery to smaller galleries featuring local artists as well. And speaking of art, I really recommend that everyone go to the Busan Museum of Art, not far from there. There are constantly excellent shows, but also a very good permanent collection. So if you're at all interested in contemporary art, this is the place to be. Now, finally, on to food. Most outsiders are surprised to hear that the most famous local dish from a seaport town is actually pork. And for Busan, this is called dueji kukbap or pork stew. This is a dish that has several renditions and several variations all around the city. But one place was recommended to me by a local and the name is called Hapchan Shikdang, a hole in the wall in the Pamiltong neighborhood. Actually, if you do go to this area, there will be probably a dozen dueji kukbap joints in one corner. So make sure you go to the right place. So our thanks to Shane Clemens, uh, who's our listener on the line from Oregon, and of course to Jayep Kwak, who is Monocle's sole correspondent. And of course, listeners, if you have a question for the concierge, do write to us. Send your questions to concierge at monocle.com. My thanks to the concierge team there. Alexi, please stick around for the travel news. That's coming up later in the show. But up next, we know you listeners love it. It is Dining Districts. Stay tuned. Dining Districts now and travellers are increasingly keen on dipping their toe into Istanbul's Asian side. The place to go for food is Kadikoy, where you can find street eats, restaurants and fresh produce packed into two bustling streets. Monocle's Istanbul correspondent Hannah Lucinda Smith takes us to two of her favourite cafes. Kadikoy is a busy port district on the Asian side of Istanbul and it's been my home for the past decade. At its heart is the Charsha, two long pedestrian streets housing meze restaurants, a fish and vegetable market, delicatessens, and some of the best places to find Turkish street food in the city. 
I'm going for lunch in the Charsha with Katie Nadwani, a food and culture writer and also a Kadikoi resident. When you first came to Kadikoi and walked through here, what did you think? So when I first moved here and I was still adjusting to Istanbul, this is the street I would walk on to remind myself why I lived here. Because you start and it's like the bars and then the mehanes and then the fish and then the fruit and vegetables and it was sort of like all the things I liked about Istanbul. Our first stop is Borsam, a green and white-tailed cafe serving lahmacun, a hot, crisp bread topped with minced lamb, tomato and spices. We take a seat outside at a plastic table and five minutes after we've ordered, our lahmacun is in front of us. Oh god, this is so good. So they cook these in like, I guess it's like a pizza oven or a bed oven, it's a stone oven. Stone oven, yeah. They are super thin, so they only take a couple of minutes. And you put this like dried pepper on top. It's like paprika, I guess. This is sumac. Oh, is that sumac? Mm -hmm. And this is the isod beaver, so like the... I don't actually know how they make it, but like sort of a smokier black red pepper from Urfa. Turkey's cuisine is diverse. Every region has something different. And around the corner from Borsam is one of the best places to get kanafe, a dessert from the south of the country where pistachios, pastry and sugar feature heavily. In the kind of region that Antakya and Gaziantep is in, this is like the really famous pistachio growing region in Turkey. And every small town has like their version on some combo of like pastry, pistachio, honey, sugar so and cream. So in a place called Kilis, their thing, it, it translates as the mud of paradise and it's literally just a heap of all these things on your plate. Oh, and so it's good. so delicious. I don't think I've ever had that. Kanafe is most famous in Antakya, one of the places worst hit by last month's earthquakes. It's a gooey and likely mix of ingredients and the best place to get it in Kadikoy is Asin, a pavement cafe where it's served up with tea on low metal tables. So basically you sort of have this like layer of gooey cheese and then sort of like shredded pastry on top and sugar and it's baked and there's crushed pistachios on top. And then kind of like, so here we are. Here we are. Oh yeah. Oh my God. I mean, is that like, that crunch through the top layer and then like the gooiness of the cheese. It's, like... it's beautiful. Mm. You can understand why literally every country is like, no, it's ours. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> like, totally. We want that. <laughs> totally. For Monocle in Istanbul, I'm Hannah Lucinda Smith. Thanks to Hannah Lucinda Smith, who was in Kadikoy for us. And that is the place to go for eats in the Asian side of Istanbul. Up next, it is the concierge's travel news. It is time now for the latest concierge travel news from all around the world, and especially perhaps from Alexei Korolev's corner of it in Vienna. Alexei, thanks for uh, staying on the show with us. Now, we've been doing a little bit of research, and we hear that the Magdas is a wonderful new place to stay in Vienna. It is indeed. It's the second Magdas location in Vienna. It was opened in February, 
the whole business is run by a charitable organization called Caritas. And the idea behind it is that they make a point of employing people from refugee backgrounds. And this was their way of showing how you could integrate all those people coming into Europe and how cultural diversity could be an asset in the hospitality industry. So the second Magdas Hotel, it's closer to the city centre than the first one. And it sort of follows the same principles as the original one. So it uses a building that used to be something else. The first one was, I think, a former retirement home. And the second one, this newest opening, is a former priest dormitory. So there's still a chapel inside the building, which is being used by the hotel for christenings and, and weddings and so on. It's got a 40-strong staff that has some 20 languages between them. Uh, and that sort of that, that reflects the motto of the whole enterprise is that they want to make guests to this country into hosts. Perfect. Well, that is the Magdas in Vienna, as recommended by Alexei Koryov. Next up, Alexei, well, we're going back to your sleeper train experience, but we're going to be a little bit more specific for our travel news section, I expect. So Italian school trips aside, what else can you tell us? I believe this is the next generation of Urbebe night jets. Yeah, well, there's been over the years lots of complaints about sort of the levels of comfort on these night jets and on these sleeper trains that Abebe is operating. And I can see why, having been on that one with all those Italian school children, I could have definitely done with more comfort there. And to address those concerns, Abebe is now introducing a new generation of night jets. This is what it calls its sleeper trains. So they'll start going from Austria to Italy this summer and autumn, and they, as advertised by Oberbe, will bring unprecedented new levels of comfort. And as I say, I can see why these new levels of comfort are desperately needed. Um, now, <laughs> the cue from your next item simply reads, there have been so many campers in Austria. Um <laughs> I'm going to stop reading the runes and I'm going to ask you how many campers is too many campers in Austria or otherwise? <laughs> it is true. There have never been so many campers in Austria. Last year, I've got the statistics in front of me. So last year, there were nearly 8 million overnight stays at camping sites across the country. That's a 23% increase on the year before. Does it mean that Austrians, more and more Austrians, are embracing nature? Perhaps. Austrians do like being in nature, you know, they like hiking and, and skiing, as mentioned before, and all that. And of course, you know, there's nude bathing, the FKK, the free body culture, which is very prevalent in Vienna and across the country. Just a quick last note on these Austrian campers. What encompasses camping? Are we talking about the beautiful, well-kept VW camper vans? Are we talking, do you have to be in a tent? No, we're actually talking camping sites. You have water, you have electricity, you'd come there in a camping van and so on. So tents, if we count people staying in tents, you know, that'd probably be, let's say, another three or four million. <laughs> Good God. Alexei Korolev, it's been lovely sharing the first half of the programme with you. Thank you for your wit and wisdom and intelligence and travel as well. Thank you to Alexei Korolev and the travel interrogator on the concierge is up next. Just like the Monocle team, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences. Allianz Partners' reputation for excellence and the continuous drive to innovate means the business is uniquely equipped to accompany its partners and customers with their ever-changing travel needs. 
So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences, and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. Allianz Partners, get the most out of your experience with peace of mind. You are listening to The Concierge on Monocle Radio. And now we move on to the interrogator, the moment in the programme where we speak to renowned global talent from the travel and aviation world. And this week we speak to Steve Allen, Group CEO of Dinata, one of the world's largest air services companies based in Dubai, which provides ground handling, in-flight catering, cargo and travel across five continents. Here he tells us about the history of Dinata and how it's tackling current surging demand for international travel. The aviation hub in Dubai was founded on the basis that Dubai has always been a trading port and so trade was a very significant part of the business. There are seven Emirates in the United Arab Emirates and the Emirate of Dubai did not have its own oil and therefore was really a trading base. And with those routes, it then the founders really realised that it geographically sat almost at the centre of the biggest landmass on Earth. So within eight hours of Dubai, you've got 80% of the world's population. So I think during the pandemic, there was all sorts of rumours that corporate travel was going to be dead because everybody was on teams and that, you know, people wouldn't travel as much in future. I think those that said that there would be a massive pent up demand for travel are the ones that were giving the best predictions because there is no doubt that it has enhanced the want to travel rather than, than cut it down. And I think, you know, I was reading somewhere that travel used to be the, the seventh most important thing on people's list. It's now the third, after having a house and food, basically people want to travel. We are seeing a huge pent-up demand. Obviously the airlines then want to get back in the skies as quick as they possibly can because they've got big debts to repay. And I think it's fair to say what we've seen across the world in the last year is that the whole industry, the aviation industry, can only move together if one part of it tries to move faster than every other part and you create bottlenecks. You look at what's happened elsewhere in the world, those things weren't well planned and it created chaos. I think now it's much more stable. It's a much better planned environment. You know, the staffing levels are much stronger. People are working together much more collaboratively. The management teams are now all on the same page. And so I'm really confident this summer that we'll see a far better experience for every traveler and back to normal really, in my view. There's no reason why anybody should be afraid of traveling anymore. One of the big things we're looking at is more sustainable solutions as well. That's whilst it's also the, it's the right thing to do to look at sustainability, it's also becoming a must have for our customers and also for regulators. So we're looking at more sustainable solutions. You're not going to fix it overnight. You can't just replace aviation fuel overnight. But I think what people should be doing is holding aviation accountable for moving forward on this and making sure that they're finding solutions that will make it sustainable in the long term. What I'm most excited about is the Far East is opening up again. There's been a lot of people telling me they can't wait to get back to Japan and Thailand and Indonesia and places like that. So that's definitely opening up. We're really excited about that because I think that will, from our perspective, that means we're back to normal. So that's a big positive for us. The magic dust went out of the aviation industry during COVID. People moved away from it, but people are starting to return and people are starting to get excited again about working in aviation. And as somebody who's worked in aviation for 30 years, I'm still excited about it and it's really good to see 
other people excited about it as well. If people want to work in aviation, then it's easier for, for those that don't to, to travel. So I think the whole thing coming back together again is the thing that I'm most excited about. That was Steve Allen, Group CEO at Dinata. And next up on The Concierge, we're off to Oregon. And finally on The Concierge, it is the in-crowd. And this week, we sail out to the US Pacific coast, where Monocle's Gregory Scruggs docked up at the Cannery Pier Hotel in Astoria, Oregon, which has just completed its first major renovation. In this once gritty town turned seaside destination, you might find yourself rubbing shoulders with some seriously fishy characters at the new hotel bar. There are currently no restrictions on the Columbia River Bar. However, vessel operations are encouraged to require passengers to wear life jackets while crossing the bar. All mariners are reminded that the operation and safe navigation of your vessel is your responsibility. When the Lewis and Clark expedition set out to explore a vast western territory newly acquired by the young United States, they spent the winter of 1805 to 1806 camped along the Pacific Ocean at the mouth of the Columbia River. William Clark described his stay in a journal entry dated 15th November 1805. Eleven days rain, the most disagreeable time I have experienced. Poor Clark was 200 years too early to upgrade from a soggy tent to a room at the Cannery Pier Hotel in Astoria, Oregon. Built on an old pier thrust 600 feet into the river, the hotel is just a few miles upstream from Clark's sodden winter camp. It opened in 2005 and just completed its first major renovation. General Manager Linda Pledge gives me a tour. Front desk. Come on in. Come on in. You'll see in every room for the Deluxe King is a cozy, cute window seat that is perfect for ship watching, and that is one of the most popular pastime that guests come here. You'll see huge vessel, bulk carrier, car cargo, ship just coming through right in front of the hotel. We have binoculars in every room for guests to look outside, and they can see that, but honestly, you don't really need them because the ships will appear right in front of you. And you can feel like you can reach out and touch that. The Deluxe King has clawfoot tub with an open window. So you can also have a view into the river while you taking a nice soak. Or um, our suites have jetted tubs. Since it's unobstructed, you really have all the privacy as well as a view into the river with the wildlife passing. Sometimes you'll see seals, lots of cormorants. We also have a pair of eagles that often likes to visit. Today's guests brave blustery coastal weather to see Lewis and Clark's camp for themselves, now a national park. Then retreat to Astoria's plethora of fresher-than-fresh seafood restaurants, well-worn watering holes, and funky independent shops hawking books, records, and local crafts. Over Dungeness Crab and a locally brewed stout, visitors can reflect on how the Lewis and Clark expedition charted the course for Astoria. 
Originally a fur trading outpost, in 1811 it became the first permanent U.S. settlement west of the Rocky Mountains. Salmon quickly replaced furs as the commodity of choice, and by the 1880s, Astoria was the canning capital of the world, turning out millions of pounds of tinned fish per year and drawing immigrant workers from China and Scandinavia. We're right now sitting on the former Union Fisherman Cooperative Packing Company. That was Astoria's first co-op. The co-op started with 100 Finnish men who said that, you know, we want to have a fair share for our catch. So they pulled their money together, each put in $100. The bottom fell out of the canning industry by the 1980s, and a once prosperous town fell into disrepair, including the many piers once home to the canneries. But newcomers were attracted by Astoria's well-preserved 1920s building stock, while old-timers held on to traditional industries like commercial fishing. At just two hours' drive from Portland, Astoria makes for an easy weekend getaway. As the northernmost point on Oregon's Pacific shore, Astoria is a natural stopover en route to the wild and scenic coastline that draws visitors from around the world for weeks-long road and cycling trips. The town has embraced tourism over the last 20 years without losing its working-class roots. Even at a hotel like the Cannery Pier, a salty fisherman is welcome inside the hotel bar. Well, Astoria is known as pretty and gritty, or high-low, and those two worlds completely complement one another. We're at the hotel that is definitely a luxury hotel, but it was built on a dilapidated dock. So you have that contrast. And then you have guests who come in from Portland, Seattle, California, worldwide, really, and you also have locals that come in here with their fishing boots or just fresh off the dock, and maybe they just want to have a drink. One of those locals is fisherman Rob Sates, captain of the South Bay. He plies the North Pacific, catching Petrale Sole and Dungeness Crab. You can tuck into his daily catch in downtown Astoria at the South Bay Wild Fish House, which he runs with his wife. On days when the weather is too rough for fishing, he's not averse to enjoying the locals' rate at the Cannery Pier. A relaxing stay soothes aching muscles from long days hauling crab traps. I feel like it's important to not compete with tourism, but try to work with it. So the reason a lot of people come to Astoria is because we are an actual working waterfront. That working waterfront is now interspersed with draws for the thirsty visitor. By some measures, Astoria has the most bars and breweries per capita of any town in Oregon. They say Astoria is a drinking town with a fishing problem. Rob is riding that wave in a novel way in collaboration with Pilot House Distilling. We have four 50-gallon oak barrels of whiskey welded to the roof of the wheelhouse. We take them out fishing with them because the constant motion and uh, salt air does good things to whiskey, apparently. Craft cocktails with local spirits, perhaps even some that have spent time at sea, are core to the drinks menu at Bar 600, the Cannery Pier Hotel's new watering hole. And if you happen to encounter Rob at the bar, he just might treat you to Astoria's other local specialty, Fisher Poetry. Long days and nights at sea have bred a brooding and bawdy literary culture that converges in Astoria for the annual Fisher Poets Gathering. I have one called Petrali Soul, and it's spelled S-O-U-L. The exquisite Petrali Soul is like the yin-yang sign of the sea 
They have their dark, mysterious side, the other white as purity. They remind me that death creates life, and ugliness defines beauty. But when you cook them in olive oil and garlic, both sides taste the same to me. Thanks to Gregory Scruggs from the Cannery Pier Hotel in Astoria, Oregon there. That is it for today's edition of The Concierge. Our thanks to our concierge questionnaires, Eduardo and Shane. Our thanks, of course, to Alexei Korilov. And our producer was Tom Webb, our researcher, Monica Lillis, and our studio manager, Callum McLean, with editing assistance from Jack Dewars. Thanks all. Join us next week when we take a visit to the chilly but cheery town of Newport in Rhode Island. I've been Robert Bound. Thank you very much for tuning in. Happy travels and we look forward to you joining us again next week on The Concierge. Thank you.